The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is March 27th, 2019, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The USAC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, we'd like to thank you, thank as always, uh, uh, to the Army Heritage Foundation for their support of everything we do uh, here at the AHEC. As you all saw, the book I'm pretty sure is almost sold out back there uh, behind the lecture hall, but all the proceeds from those book sales go to the Army Heritage Center Foundation uh, and the hard work they do. We'll also have a book signing at the end of the lecture, so if you did buy a book, uh, please stick around for that. Um, so tonight, it is my great honor uh, to introduce our speaker. Mr. Steven Zaloga received his BA in History from Union College in Schenectady, New York, his MA in history from Columbia University, uh, and he did his language study graduate research in Krakow, Poland. I wasn't going to try to pronounce that university. <laughs> he has been involved in defense studies since 1978 with a short interlude in the late 1980s doing television writing and production. He has been a senior analyst at Teal Group Corps in Fairfax, Virginia since 1992, covering the missile and drone industry as well, in the, as well as the international arms trade for clients and industry and government. He has also served as an adjunct staff with the Strategy Forces and Resource Division of the Institute of Defense Analysis. He is the author of numerous books on military history and military technology, writing extensively on tank and armored vehicle development with, the, with a focus on, of course, Russian uh, and American armored vehicles. He has published extensively on World War II military history, including The Devil's Garden, about the German defenses of Omaha Beach on D-Day, and Patton versus the Panzers, about the Lorraine campaign in 1944. This lecture is based on his recent book, Smashing Hitler's Pan uh, Panthers, published by Panzers, <laughs> published by Stackpole in 2018. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mr. Steven Zaloga. Good evening. I'm especially happy to be here and giving the talk here tonight because most of my ideas for this book started here in Carlisle. Um, over the years, I've done quite a bit of work here at the Library and Research Center, so I think it's appropriate to give the talk here. Um, if you look at the subtitle of the book, it seems rather specialized, the defeat of the German 12th SS Panzer Division in the Ardennes or in the Battle of the Bulge. But the aim of this book was to address much broader questions, and especially when was the German Ardennes offensive defeated? Why was it defeated? And the reason I'm raising that issue is that for those of you who are familiar with the Battle of the Bulge, the Battle in the Ardennes, most US accounts focus on the defense of Bastogne. So if you're familiar with Battle of the Bulge, usually that's the explanation. The German army's defeated in the, uh, the attacks around Bastogne. What I'd like to argue tonight is, in fact, the German offensive was defeated much earlier. It was defeated days before, and it was defeated in a series of small battles on the Elsenborn Ridge involving this particular German unit and some other German units that are not very well known. And I'm not immediately going to explain why I think they're not very well known, but I'm going to jump into the meat of the issue, which is when was the offensive defeated? And in order to do that, First, we have to define what the Germans were trying to accomplish. In order to say that it was defeated, we have to know what they were trying to do before we can say that, they, they were, that the campaign was, was stopped somewhere. So I'm going to define the German objectives. I'm going to identify the Schwerpunkt, the focal point. What was the main point of the German attack? Where did it occur? I'm going to then examine 
when the Germans themselves realized that the campaign had failed. Not when the US thought that the campaign had failed, when the Germans themselves thought that it had failed. Then to, to uh, culminate the talk, I'll try to explain where the plan failed and why the plan failed. Where does the plan for the Ardennes Offensive come from? December 1944, Germany's on the verge of defeat. Um, they have the Western Allies in France, Belgium, on the German border, um, ready to go into central Germany. And of course, on the Eastern Front, the Russians are in Poland, not very far from uh, Berlin. It's really only a matter of time before they are defeated. Hitler, as early as September of 1944, becomes convinced that the only way to regain the strategic initiative in the war is to win a great victory. And he has no expectation that he can win a victory against the Red Army. It's simply too large. He is also under the illusion that it might be simpler to break up the Western Allied Alliance, namely Britain and the United States. Some major blow against Britain and the United States would cause political dissension, as occurred in 1940 between Britain and France. And therefore, perhaps, he would have the chance to have a major strategic victory. So on 16 September 1944 is the first time he mentions the idea of an Ardennes attack. This happens to coincide with the second of the summer panzer offensives. I'm going to go back a little bit here. The German army during the summer of 1944 launched two panzer offensives against the US Army. They launched one at the beginning of August 1944, an attempt to defeat the US First Army, which was breaking out of Normandy after Operation Cobra. It's a complete failure. The one lesson from this that will have something to do with this campaign, the Germans blame the defeat on Allied air power. They feel that the attack, Operation Ludwig near Mortain, was defeated by Allied air power. So Hitler gets this idea, okay, we're going to have to do this in the winter when the weather's terrible. The Allies won't have any air power to help defeat the German uh, forces. The second lesson that he draws is from a campaign that's far less known, and that was a panzer offensive that was staged in September 1944 against Patton's Third Army in Lorraine. And the reason it's not very well known is it fizzled out. It was not particularly well done. And one of the big problems was is that Hitler tried to mass a large number of tanks to make a major attack against Patton's Third Army and wipe out Patton's Third Army. But instead of having a big concentrated mass, the local commanders just took little bits of this force and committed them piecemeal. And as a result, there was never a large blow. So the US Army never re even really appreciated that they had been the target of a major offensive. The offensive basically petered out. So Hitler draws a second lesson there. His lesson is he can't allow the local commanders to parcel out all of the vehicles and all these resources for little local attacks and things. He's got to keep them all concentrated. So as a result, for the Ardennes, he's going to keep all of his big best units back in Germany, back rebuilding and only unleash them in the Ardennes at the beginning of the offensive. In October, um, he actually sits down with the head of uh, the OKW, the German High Command, uh, Alfred Jodl, and says, OK, you, you, you write up this plan. And he explained to him what his basic concept was. So Jodl comes back, and he says, there's five areas where we can attack the Netherlands, Liegeachen, Luxembourg, Lorraine, Alsace. Hitler had no interest in four of the five. He, right from the outset, thought about the Ardennes. Now, the reason for this is somewhat self-evident. One of Hitler's greatest victories was the defeat of France in 1940. And where did this occur? The German forces charged through the Ardennes, surprised the Allies, and defeated the French and British forces in France. So he says, aha, our great miracle. Maybe we can do a miracle again. There's another reason for the Ardennes at this time also. And I'll get into some detail a little bit later. US defenses in the Ardennes were very weak. Uh, senior US commanders, especially Omar Bradley, looked at the Ardennes and said, we don't have to put very many forces here. It would be a terrible location for the Germans to attack. So in any event, um, Lijakin, uh, and I'll show this in a map in a moment, is what is selected for what is first called Watch on the Rhine. That's the code name for this operation. It's first called Watch on the Rhine. This is the area where the Ardennes is located. As Hitler starts dis uh, discussing this plan um, with his various commanders, he comes up with two concepts. His concept is eventually called the big solution. What Hitler's idea is, is to launch an offensive from, in Germany, it's called the Eiffel region. It's the forested area next to the Ardennes. So the idea is he's going to push up through the Ardennes up to the main port of Antwerp, which is the big uh, Belgian port. 
And what he's trying to do there is that the British are on one side of that line, the Americans are on the other side of the line. He's hoping to create the second Dunkirk. So for those of you who have seen the recent movie, um, he's hoping to recreate that where the British will be forced out of continental Europe by a great defeat. The, the senior German commander is not Hitler, but the commanders un, under him, the commander of, uh, of OB West and the commander of, of Army Group B, um, don't have great hopes for such a dramatic scheme. Um, the German army has suffered a massive defeat in France in the summer of 1944. It's been unable to completely rebuild. And for all of Hitler's promises, most of the forces just don't seem to be appearing in the reserves in Germany. Hitler is unwilling to take resources out of other areas. Norway, Greece, the Balkans. And so the senior German commanders look at this plan and say, yeah, this plan is doable if you can give us 40 or 45 divisions. Hitler says, you have to do it with 20. And so they say, no, maybe we could do a small solution, but we can't do the big solution. In any event, um, in uh, the later part of October, OB West, which is the Western Command under Rundstedt, they come up with a plan that they call Plan Martin. And the next command underneath uh, OB West, uh, here's Group B, Army Group B, under uh, Walter Model, he comes up, or his office comes up with a plan called Herbstnebel, which is German for uh, autumn mist. Um, in any event, Hitler looks at both of these uh, offerings and says they're completely unsatisfactory. They're basically this idea of a small solution, not a big drive up to Antwerp, just a little envelopment of some American forces defeating a few American divisions. And Hitler is quite right in this. I mean, if he's expecting to get some grand strategic results out of this operation, it's got to be something big. Some little campaign to knock off a few American divisions is not going to change the course of the war. So in any event, he tells the, the other commanders, Runstead and Model, go back and you know, do a better job. Um, I mentioned on here on this date, 18 November 1944, Yodel issues tactical directives. I'm going to explain why that's important later on. I'll skip it for now. In any event, the final plan is drafted on the 19th of November 1944, Operation uh, Order uh, Herb's Nebel, uh, Autumn Mist. It's done by, here's Group B, by Model's Command. Um, and basically this time Hitler signs off on it because Model has learned by this stage that there's no use fighting Hitler. He's not going to put up with any insubordination from his uh, junior officers. So it basically follows the big solution. And so uh, Hitler approves it on the 9th of December. The attack is going to start on 16 December 1944. Now, this is what I was talking about when I mentioned earlier big solution and small solution. Um, Hitler's idea is the big solution. And uh, let me see if the laser is visible here. Yes, it is. His big idea here is to go all the way up to Antwerp. And of course, you have the ocean up here. The small solution was this little operation here, just going in and surrounding US forces in Aachen. Now, the forces that will be involved in the Ardennes campaign are basically three armies. Six Panzer Army. Now, this is the army where 12th SS Panzer Division is located, the one that my book focuses on. Um, it's led by Sepp Dietrich. It's basically a Waffen-SS um, formation. Uh, to its immediate south is 5th Panzer Army. This is a regular army, Panzer Division, or uh, Panzer Army. It's uh, headed by von Monteufel. Uh, and then finally, down south is basically an infantry army, the 7th Army. Now, getting back to that issue, where's the Schwerpunkt? Where's the focal point? The focal point in the attack is this. It's Six Panzer Army. Um, and the reason is actually quite simple, and it has to do with geography. Six Panzer Army has the quickest routes to Antwerp. Let me explain why. Um, this is the Belgian-German border. The Ardennes is located in here. The battles that I detail are in this area of the Ardennes. This is Liège and the Meuse River. This is going to be the first objective. In order to get to Antwerp, you first have to get up there and go across the Meuse River. Now, there's a problem here, especially in the wintertime, east-west roads. There's only one. There's only one decent road. Now, we got to put ourselves back into the 1940s. It's not like today with the European Union. European Union, you drive anywhere around here, you can go across international borders. In 1940, 1930, 1920, you couldn't. The borders were basically closed. You'd have to go through a city that had a customs point. The only customs point is down here. It's in a little town called Los, uh, uh, sometimes called the Losan Gap, but it's, it's, I don't even know if it's on the map. But in any event, the customs post is right there. But up here, there are no 
there are no roads to go over into or towards Liège, except for secondary roads that, especially in the winter months, are not in particularly good shape. So I'm going to show this in a little bit more detail. Here's the plan for Six Panzer Army. Okay, so here's the focal point. These are the most important German units, and here's what the plan is. The plan is typical German tactics, meaning that they start the campaign by pushing the infantry forward to overcome the American defenses. The American defenses in the sector are basically, there's one infantry division, the 99th division located here. There's a second infantry division, the second infantry division up here conducting its own campaign um, separate from this. And there's a third division, the 106th division, uh, down in the Saint-Vith area, but outside of the sector of Six Panzer Army. Now the plan is, is to uh, have the infantry, the German infantry, these divisions here, penetrate the line, overcome the American defenses, and once they've done that, they're going to swing up north and create a blocking line to prevent the U.S. units up here, very strong forces, U.S. 9th Army and parts of 1st U.S. Army up here to prevent those guys from coming down and assisting. And once the infantry has gotten through, then the two tank units, 1st SS Panzer Division, and 12th SS Panzer, here's 12th, the guys who I write about in the book, um, these guys are going to go racing forward and cross the Meuse River. So that's the plan. It all seems pretty straightforward until you start looking at the maps. Um, this is what the train looks like. This is a little bit clearer. You can see that it's, the area is heavily forested. Basically, this is the border here, so there's no very good roads. The only good road is this one up through here, through Lusheim, through the Lusheim Gap. And they're going to try to push two panzer divisions through it. Now, you can't push two panzer divisions through a, a small secondary road. It'd be like pushing it through the roads out here in Carla. They're not, these are not super highways. And it's wintertime. So they offer some additional routes. So 12th SS Panzer, the unit that I wrote about, gets three routes. They get Route A through Rochroth, Route B, through Krenkelt, and they get one of the two good roads coming up through the Losheim Gap. First SS Panzer Division, their neighboring division, and a unit that's very well known for the Malmedy Massacre, they get these two southern routes. They're going to be going up that way. Now, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but one of the reasons that this attack fails is the original plan is to push most of 12th SS Panzer up this fairly decent road through Lossheim, through the customs posts. But what ends up happening is that a gigantic traffic jam builds up over here because there are no roads. And as a result, 1st SS Panzer gets here first and takes over these roads, and 12th SS Panzer is not able to get through here. They go through this one awful, awful road up here, and I'll show some pictures as we get into this talk. Here's where 12th SS Panzer is going to try to go through. This is a, a section on the edge of the Ardennes Forest called the Holoroth Gap, or the Holoroth uh, Knee. And the reason it's called the Knee is it's, um, if you look at the road, it's kind of like that. It's a sharp angle. Basically, it comes from Germany and then it goes south down along the Belgian frontier. Now, there's an added problem in this area. This is the Belgian-German border. The Germans in the late 1930s decide to defend the border by putting up anti-tank traps. So when the Germans show up on the border on December 16, 1944, there's tank traps all along the border. There's another problem. The German army since 1943 has not been on the offensive. They have lost some of the skills of offensive mechanized operations. They have no engineer breaching equipment. They have no specialized equipment like what the Western Allies have or what the British Army has, what the US Army has. They have no quick way of getting through these tank traps. So they're going to be slowed down by their own uh, defenses. And they can't blow them in advance. Because Hitler wants this to be a surprise attack, they can't go out a couple weeks before and demolish these things. The, you know, this is a couple days of work for an engineer force, but you can't do it publicly if it's going to be a surprise attack. So those things sit there. This is the road that 12th SS Panzer Division is going to have to use as its main route for this attack. We're talking in excess of 12,000 troops, 3,000 vehicles. It's a muddy little forest road. It's not really even a road. It's a logging trail. Um, it's that Route A that we saw on that earlier map. And they fall back on this simply because the better roads get jammed up 
for, for the reason of traffic jams, and the other Panzer Division basically takes them over. So we're starting out with some serious issues. Now I'm going to show you the other serious issue. And I'm moving down south. We had been, the picture I showed you before is up a little bit north of here. This is Lossheim, where the customs post is, and where the passage, where the good road goes into Belgium, up towards Antwerp. Now this is a German engineering map, a Westfall map, Westfall being the German fortifications along the border. And you can see all of the fortifications that they put down along the border, which are going to be blocking these roads. There's another problem. In the summer of 1944, there's a railroad overpass that goes over the one good road up into this area. It got knocked down. Nobody rebuilt it. It's blocking the road. So what's going to happen on 16 December 1944 when the Germans launch the attack is their infantry gets here and captures this town very quickly because there's practically no U.S. defenses here. But what happens is a gigantic traffic jam starts building up back here. There's no way to get through. And they don't get through until the evening of the first day. Um, a, a, a number of tanks with Comp Group Piper, which is 1st SS Panzer Division, the unit down here, they manage to push through by basically just going over all this stuff. But the problem that, uh, that Comp Group Piper has is you can't get the trucks in behind you. You can take your tanks, you can get, get over the debris on the bridge and stuff like that. But all your support, all your fuel trucks and ammunition trucks and the people carrying your infantry, they're still stuck in the traffic jam back here. So this becomes the major bottleneck in this sector. Let's just take a quick look at what the German plan was. This, this is the expectations. This is not what happens. This is what they want to happen. There was no formal schedule. There's nowhere you can go down to the National Archives and you can actually find the German orders. There's no formal schedule. They don't say on day one we want to be here. It's more general expectations. If you go back and you look at the memoirs of the German officers, they will explain what they thought was going to happen. So as I mentioned, the start of the campaign is the infantry divisions are going to get through the American defenses. They expect that this is going to happen. They'll be through the forest and through the American defenses by the morning of X day, the first day of the offense of 16 uh, December 1944. They think that by noon on the first day, on 16 December, they're going to be five to six kilometers beyond the forests up on Elsenborn Ridge. So if you remember that map I had up, you had all of the forests down there, and then you had some clear terrain up there. They want to get up onto the high ground, up onto Elsenborn Ridge, which is basically open uh, farm fields. OKW, the uh, Army High Command, expects that they'll reach the Meuse River in about two days. Um, six Panzer Army, the people that we're talking about, weren't quite that optimistic. They expected it would take one day to break the U.S. defenses, so they'd be through it on the 16th. One day to pass over the Havan, which is the high, the plateau beyond. They would arrive on the Meuse River by the third day, 18 December. They would cross the Meuse the following day on the 19th. Now, the critical thing about 18 December is the Germans all assumed they would take the U.S. Army three days to react that for the first two or three days, the U.S. Army wouldn't understand what was happening, and it would take three days before the U.S. Army starts to react. And so these days are absolutely critical, because they've got to get over the Miz before the U.S. Army reacts. The U.S. Army has a lot more forces, not in the Ardennes, but neighboring on either side of the Ardennes. So these first few days are absolutely critical to the progress of the campaign. I'm going to talk a little bit about the unit um, that uh, is the centerpiece of my book, uh, the 12th SS Panzer Division, Hitler Jürgen. Hitler Jürgen is Hitler Youth. Uh, it's a, a political movement. I would describe it as sort of like a German equivalent of the Boy Scouts, but that's unfair because American Boy Scouts are not a political organization. It's sort of you took the Boy Scouts and connected them with a political party. There's a lot of political indoctrination. And the other issue is that the uh, German society was heavily militarized, so when you belong to the Hitler Youth, you also receive preliminary uh, uh, military training. Now, the Hitler Youth were young people, 12, 13, 14. The ones who were uh, recruited for th this particular division were generally no younger than 17. Um, although, in fact, by this time, there's not enough Hitler Jürgen to go around, and so this particular division gets a mishmash of troops. Now, to start off with, this division served mostly against the Canadians in Normandy and suffered wicked casualties. Um, they suffered about 8,000 casualties. Now, the division has a, a strength of about 12,000, 13,000 men, but the point is, is that in a division like that, when you're saying 8,000 casualties, you're meaning that virtually every combatant in that division is a casualty. Because every division has a large number of 
logistics troops and other troops that are not uh, combat troops, not infantry, panzer grenadier, uh, tank troops of that sort. So the units took very heavy casualties, and here's some particular examples. Their tank regiment suffered 85% casualties in Normandy. Um, their panzer grenadier, which is their mechanized infantry, they took 75% casualties in Normandy. So there's very few people, very few experienced troops left over after Normandy. Um, to give some example uh, at the command level, out of uh, the, the, the uh, three battalion commanders and 12 rifle company commanders that there should have been if they had all survived the Normandy campaign, there was only one battalion commander, or excuse me, only, only one of these 15 commanders was still in place in, in the, in, from the summer into the Ardennes campaign. So, you know, when you hear people say, oh, the German units kept all this continuity of command because, you know, they had these experienced commanders who fought one campaign and then they're still commanding in the later campaign. That was not the case in the Ardennes in uh, the 12th SS Panzer Division. Very few of the senior commanders were still in place between the summer campaign and the Ardennes campaign. Secondly, the, the division only starts to rebuild on the 15th of October, 1944. In other words, two months before the campaign is going to start. And once again, they're getting raw recruits in. These are not simply filling out 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the unit. They're filling out most of the unit, in many cases with these very junior young kids who have no real military experience. That's one thing with the infantry, but it's especially difficult in any of the other elements, especially the Panzer Force, because of the technical requirements and the artillery force, also the technical requirements. There's a shortage of experienced personnel, equipment, and fuel. They're short of everything. To the extent that the tank crews only had two weeks of training. So you get these raw recruits who have never served in a tank. In many cases, not, didn't even know how to drive an automobile. They're given two weeks of training. They're given no unit training. They're given, you know, they're stuck inside a tank and shown how to drive the thing. But they're not sent out at company level, at, at battalion level, to actually conduct any realistic tactical training. And it's limited to two weeks. And more than that, it's not even on army bases. This division is mostly uh, sent off to small towns and conduct their training away from army bases where you'd have tank firing fields and that sort of thing. So the training is minimal. There was little actual vehicle use, especially tanks, um, and little live fire training. They had, you know, they were able to fire a few rounds of tank ammunition. It was so bad that they were even limited on the amount of pistol ammunition they could fire. So when you, know, when you read these accounts in World War II and they refer to the Waffen-SS divisions as elite divisions, you have to stop to think about when you're talking about. Maybe in the summer of 1944, 12th SS Panzer is an elite division. But in the winter of 1944, it's a new, green, inexperienced unit with poor equipment. Um, here's some more detail. Uh, a division like this uh, should have a regiment of tanks. Uh, they would normally have two tank battalions, a battalion of Panther tanks, and a battalion of Panzer IVs. Um, they, in fact, only have a single hybrid tank battalion, meaning mixed Panthers and Panzer IVs. Um, they were authorized under the uh, Tables of Organization Equipment 195 tanks. They, in fact, only had about 80, so less than half. They substituted some tank destroyers, four tanks, but these had real problems. They're not going to figure in my talk tonight. They, they took part in the Battle of Dombutenbach. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. Um, they, this is a mechanized division, an, an armored division, so they have uh, Panzer Grenadiers, armored infantry. But of the six Panzer Grenadier battalions, only one of them has armored half-tracks. The other five battalions are using trucks, and the trucks are not cross-country trucks. They're ordinary commercial Opel Blitz trucks, the kind that you know you'd uh, shop would have. Um, they're authorized 522 light AFVs, meaning half-tracks, armored cars, vehicles like that. They only have 185. They're authorized 933 cross-country vehicles, you know, big heavy trucks. They only have 302, which is very important considering what the weather's like. Uh, Half-track prime movers, things that drag your artillery and your big stuff around, they only have 90 out of more than 200 authorized. They're authorized five units of fuel. Uh, in the German Army, a unit of fuel is defined as what it takes to get you 100 kilometers on a road. On hand, when they start the attack, they have 1.3 units, meaning enough to get you 130 kilometers on a road, but roughly 60 or 70 kilometers cross country. They have the other fuel units, but they're back around Cologne. So they're back 50, 60 miles back beyond that traffic jam. 
So this is not a, a happy situation. If 12th SS Panzer Division, which is an elite formation, is in that situation, what about the infantry? They're in far poorer condition. Um, the unit that I'll talk about most is 277th Volks Grenadier Division. Volks Grenadier Division is a new type of formation started in the summer of 1944. It's basically a cut-rate infantry division aimed mostly for defensive operations. So there's less personnel. Instead of having six infantry battalions, there's only four. Um, or excuse me, instead of, instead of nine, there's only six. Um, but in any event, they're, they're, um, they're smaller and weaker than a conventional infantry division. When the offensive starts, they're at 72% strength, so about three-quarters strength. The German Army in uh, 1944 rates their divisions at four levels. Uh, first is a first-rate unit ready for offensive operations. Second is a unit that's suitable for offensive, maybe not top par, but pretty good. Third means suitable for defense, meaning a unit that can uh, engage in defensive operations, but not really suitable for offensive operations. And four is barely suitable for defense. Well, this unit that's supposed to spearhead 12th SS Panzer Division is rated at three, which is suitable for defense, not for offense. The best infantry unit in the area is 12th Volks Grenadier Division. The uh, commander who led this was part of Hitler's personal staff. And uh, he was picked for that division. A couple of the junior officers tried to get him to uh, become the commander because they figured he had the year of Hitler. They'd get all the equipment they wanted. It performed extremely well during the fighting with the US Army in Aachen. Um, but the problem is, it was so good that it was continually pushed into the line, into the line, into the line. Um, it fought around Aachen until the 3rd of December, only two weeks before the offensive starts. It suffered uh, very high casualties. So in two weeks' time, it's going to try to uh, incorporate 3,000 fresh raw infantry and uh, 500 convalescents wounded troops from the division. This infantry comes out of, mainly out of the Luftwaffe and Kriegsmarine, meaning the German Air Force and the German uh, Navy. Because the Germans don't have any fuel, the Air, Air Force isn't flying and the Navy's not doing anything, so they take these personnel. So, you know, the, these are perfectly well-trained people. I mean, a, a young Luftwaffe sergeant who's a mechanic working on aircraft engines is a highly skilled individual. But the problem is he's going to get stuck in an infantry division. He has no tactical training for infantry. And I might add, it's not only the enlisted men. It's the same problem with the uh, officers. This becomes really clearly the case with this unit, 3rd Fallschirmjäger Division. That's a parachute division. This was widely regarded by the US Army in Normandy in 1944 as the best German unit. It was excellent, a superb unit. The US Army rated this as the equivalent of two infantry divisions. In December 1944, it is horrible. One of the reasons is that the officers are these Luftwaffe officers who have been sitting out the war at air posts. You know, they're not incompetent people. They know what they're trained to do. They're Luftwaffe personnel, but they get stuck in a parachute unit and they don't know anything about ground combat. They're promised armor support. They're promised an assault gun brigade. That never shows up. It's caught in the uh, traffic jam that I mentioned. Another controversy. Hitler insisted that the Ardennes offensive begin with a massive artillery barrage. He's going to just absolutely crush the American defenses with artillery. There's problems with this. Not enough guns, not enough ammunition. Because it's a surprise attack, Hitler says no artillery reconnaissance. He doesn't want people sneaking across the border looking where the American units are. He doesn't want aircraft units flying over taking photographs. He wants it a calm, peaceful area so that nobody suspects an attack is going to uh, come here. There's another problem. You saw the forests in that uh, picture. The US divisions had created log shelters in the forests. What happens when the artillery comes in, the rounds strike the upper part of the trees go off. Now, that would be really, really lethal against infantry that's out and exposed. But if the infantry is in these log dugouts, they're very, very well protected against artillery. So Sepp Dietrich, uh, 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 an SS officer uh, uh, since the 1930s, follows Hitler's rules explicitly. He follows that artillery rule, and his infantry will fail. The neighboring unit to the south, the regular army unit, 5th Panzer Army of Monteufel. Monteufel hears this rule and says, to hell with that. I'm not doing that. And he says, we're going to go back to 1918 to infiltration tactics, which succeeded in 1918. Instead of warning the Americans that we're going to attack them, we're going to sneak in under cover of darkness and under cover of the crappy weather, and we're going to infiltrate. We're going to be back behind the American lines before they're even aware an offensive has started. And guess what happens? They succeed. That's not the sector I'm talking about tonight, but they're the, 
they're the only ones who really make any inroads into the American defenses. This is an important feature. Whenever you think of the Battle of Bulge, you immediately think of snow-covered fields. Well, there's a problem. It was snowing and freezing in the early part of the month. The thaw started a day before the offensive. It was unusually wet that year, so the ground's all mud. It becomes a tank uh, front, one tank wide. What this means is that the tanks can't move cross-country. When the Germans come through, they're going to have to stay on the roads. If they start moving out into the fields, they're going to bog down in the mud. Now, what that also means that the Germans are going to have to fight for every little stony Belgian village, and that's what's going to stop them. The move starts. I'm going to, I'm going to run through this kind of quick because I'm starting to run out of time. Um, the, the, the Ardennes offensive actually starts several days before the offensive itself starts. They have something called Operation Obvier, and what they're doing is that they're taking all of their hidden units from deep inside Germany and moving them forward down to the edge of the battle. In order to keep it secret from the Americans, they couldn't have their units right up against the, the, uh, the edge of the battle. But there's a problem with this. For example, of the 115 tanks and armored fighting vehicles from 12th SS Panzer that moves from the Cologne area down to the Ardennes frontier, 46 of the 115 break down. I'm not going to get into the reasons for that. The Germans have some real serious mechanical and training problems. But that's just one of the sort of things. Then they have the traffic jams. So Okay, I'm going to start the battle at this point. So 16 December, pre-dawn, it's dark outside. The Germans start a gigantic artillery barrage. Um, these are the regiments of the 277th Infantry Division, the one that I mentioned earlier. They're the ones who have to do the first mission. They've got to get through the American defenses, which are along this wood line. Now, the interesting thing is, is that or what the Germans didn't know, what even the Americans didn't appreciate, about two days before the attack begins, there had been some German troops up on this little hill up here called Rat, what the U.S. Army called Rats Hill, and they had been harassing the elements of the uh, 99th Division who were down here. So the 99th got fed up, and they took two companies, and they sent them up and took over Rats Hill. Now, why this is critical is that the main road here comes along here and then goes down here. This is Hollerath Knee. And it just so happens that that forest trail that I showed earlier happens to be right here. So of this particular U.S. Infantry Battalion, which had three companies on the line all located here two days before the offensive, suddenly they only have one company. And that's where all of the German forces are going to come through. And that's the reason that the Germans get this penetration through what's called Rollband A, this little forest road. Down here they make the attacks and are stopped dead in their tracks. But up here they get into that lousy little muddy road. So they have a success there. And this is what it looks like after uh, the, uh, the one day of fighting. They're starting, uh, this is, excuse me, this is down south. This is um, the next sector down. What I had just shown you in the previous map was further north. This is the southern sector going up through Losheim, going up through that good road net. And here they have basically the same problem that they had over in the other sector. And here they had one specific problem. This particular uh, uh, German regiment, infantry regiment, coming through. The Germans had very poor tactical radios, uh, not the equivalent of American walkie-talkies or handy-talkies. They used to rely on field telephones where you have to drag the wire behind you. They saw the senior commanders who were leading the unit cutting wire. And the reason that they were cutting wire is that the US infantry had put booby traps down through their woods here. So these officers are coming through, they're seeing the booby traps, they're cutting the wire for the booby traps. These young, untrained infantrymen are coming behind and seeing them cutting wire. The infantrymen say, aha, our bosses are showing us what to do, we're going to cut wire. They cut the field telephone wire. And what happens is that this unit gets hit by German artillery because they can't, they can't communicate back with their artillery. So this unit gets pretty heavily uh, bashed up by their own artillery. This unit actually does get up into the Buchholz stationary. There's a railroad line here plus a road line. I was mentioning um, uh, 3rd uh, Paratroop Division. Uh, they try to get this little town of Lanzarath. The most heavily decorated US unit in the Ardennes is this little intelligence and reconnaissance platoon uh, stationed here. A handful of men, not even a full platoon in strength. It's probably like 18, 18 uh, men. They stop an entire German Fallschirmjäger regiment for an entire day. And the reason was is that the officer who commanded this particular German unit was a Luftwaffe officer with no tactical training. He kept just launching frontal attacks, 
And these guys had a 30 caliber Browning light machine gun and just mowed them down. And then finally in the afternoon, a German NCO, a, 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 a non-commissioned officer who uh, was an experienced paratrooper, he finally told the, uh, the, the Luftwaffe officer to drop dead and he took over and basically just encircled the American troops and took them over, basically captured them all in about five minutes. Here's a day into the fight. Um, the Germans, because of this initial breakthrough here, has succeeded in getting into the forest after about a day of fighting. Now what's happening in the meantime is that up north of here, the US 2nd Infantry Division, a very experienced division, had been conducting its, its own campaign up, uh, trying to capture some, some uh, uh, road junctions fur further up to the north. They hear all of the artillery offensive, um, they send some people down here to see what's going on. They realize the Germans have started something big. And their supply lines, 2nd Infantry used to be down here. They had moved up there for that operation. All their supply lines come through this little rocky village of Krinkel Rocherat. They say, we've got, to hold that, we've got to hold that village. So they get permission from Corps, from, from Five Corps, and they start moving their units down into Rocherat. They react immediately. The important thing is that General Richardson from 2nd Division understands immediately what's going on, and he starts moving his units, and he convinces Drew at Corps level what he's got to do. And they start responding. This is at the local level. This isn't Bradley and Eisenhower. This is the local guys. One thing that he does is that he's trying to move one of his infantry regiments, the 38th, into these towns. That's this unit here. He's trying to get those guys from all the way up there, come down here, set up a defense in this town. But he knows the Germans are operating in these woods here, and he knows he's got to shield them. So he, uh, he tells uh, one of his battalions, the 1st of the 9th Infantry, uh, that they have to set up a defense at that crossroads. The commander of the unit is a young colonel by the name of McKinley, and if the name McKinley rings a bell, President of the United States, this is one of his gr uh, great nephews. So, um, so McKinley sets up this little defense at the Lawsdell Crossroads, which has been later described in most of the accounts of the Battle of the Bulge as probably the single most heroic uh, defense in the Battle of the Bulge. This company, they set up in this muddy little field, and they're going to be attacked by everything artillery, infantry, tanks, everything. They set up on the evening of the 16th of December, or excuse me, the 17th of December, and they'll hold out for roughly 18 hours, but against everything. Um, and they basically stopped 12th SS Panzer from getting out into these fields in enough time for the 38th Infantry to get into the little village and set up defenses. This is a contemporary uh, overhead view. The Germans are up in this area coming down here, uh, in this area is McKinley's defenses, and 38th is stationed down in here. So here is how the attack breaks out on the afternoon of the 18th. The German tanks and armored vehicles start coming out. Um, they push aside by the later part of the morning. They push aside McKinley's unit, which by this stage has been decimated. I mean, it started with uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 men. By this stage, it's down around 100. Um, suffered wicked casualties. Um, and so in any event, but they, they accomplished their mission. Their mission was to hold the crossroads long enough for the 38th to set up. So there's the details. In my book, I go into quite a bit more detail about the, the nitty-gritty of the, um, the battle. But what happens, so let me go back here and make a point. The German infantry is coming across here with the tanks. Uh, standard German doctrine, if you're going to fight in a town, you're not going to fight in a town with tanks because they're vulnerable to enemy infantry. You've got to get in there with infantry and tanks. But what happens is the McKinley and some of the other units near the edge, they're calling in artillery. And the artillery basically strips away the German infantry in these open fields. And there's a slaughter of German infantry. So what ends up happening is that what's coming in here is mostly tanks and armored vehicles. But they're coming into a town that's full of infantry, infantry armed with bazookas, any tank guns, three companies of tanks, and a tank destroyer battalion. So they're coming into a what the Germans themselves call a panzer graveyard. Um, it's tanks without infantry. They can't do very well in these tight conditions. So basically, this is one of the two key units they had to get up to the Meuse River. And instead of getting to the Meuse River, it's gotten caught up in three days of nasty urban fighting in this little village. And we're going to see the consequences. I'm going to mention just briefly what happened to the neighboring unit, first SS Panzer. They go charging through Lusheim Gap, that little area that I showed before, where there's practically no U.S. forces. They get up as far as the little village of La Glaze. By that stage, the U.S. is moving in infantry divisions. They get trapped. This is Comp Group Piper. Comp Group Piper is, of 
course, notorious for the Malmedy massacre. Um, so the Schwerpunkt was these two panzer divisions, 12th up to the north and just below it, 1st SS. And within the first three days, this one has gotten stopped in this little village, and 1st SS panzer is trapped in a little valley around La Glaze. Okay, let's make a, a little summary here. The plan expected that the Panzers would have been on the Meuse River on the 19th. They're not. They're still trapped in Crankelt Rochrock and up in La Glaze. Comp Group Piper, La Glaze. The plan was is that once they did their penetration, sitting behind them were two more SS Panzer divisions, the second SS Panzer Corps. So what would have happened is they were expected by the 19th to be up on the Meuse River, and at that point, uh, Six Panzer Army was going to throw forward two more, and then they were going to all race up towards Antwerp. Well, that's not happening because nobody's getting through those traffic jams or through these defended towns. The other important consequence on the 18th of December is, I mentioned earlier, there were three German armies in, uh, con, uh, committed to the Ardennes Offensive. Hitler had planned to add a fourth, the 15th Army, which is way up north, up near Aachen, had planned to send that unit in around the 18th to reinforce the northern sector. But even Hitler takes one look at what's happening and says, uh, no. Uh, so 15th Army's pulled out. So suddenly, instead of having four armies attacking, he's got three. By this time, by roughly the 18th of December, basically three days into the attack, 6th Panzer Army headquarters accepts that the 1st Panzer Corps attack, the main focal attack, has failed. Um, German headquarters, meaning Rundstedt's headquarters, OB West, realize that the big solution, the real mission, of the Ardennes Offensive is impossible by the 19th of December. There's just no hope of redeeming it. Down further south, five Panzer Army has gotten through. They broke through a Green American Division, the 106th, and they're moving up towards Manhay and up towards Bastogne. But the problem is there's nowhere to go. These guys are way down south. They're not going to be able to get up to any of the key positions on the Meuse River. They're just going to be stooging around down at Bastogne. Now, the US Army always says, ah, oh, Bastogne big defense there. But from a German perspective, Bastogne's nothing. It's a, it's a little road town. The important towns were these ones further up north. This is the situation um, at the end of the campaign. Basically, this front becomes stagnant right before Christmas. So you have uh, the infantry and a newly introduced uh, Panzer Grenadier Division infantry, and this they're just basically licking their wounds. Um, the battle that I didn't talk about, although I detail it in my book, after they uh, got beaten up uh, here, in Krinka Rochroth, the remaining Panzer Grenadier Regiment and what remaining tanks uh, they had were sent down to Butenbach, and there they ran into the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One, and they got smashed to bits there over the course of about two days of fighting. So they're down here licking their wounds. 3rd uh, Fallschirmjäger Division doesn't go anywhere. So basically, they got a small penetration into the American lines, but you know they're supposed to be way, way, way over on the Meuse River, so it's failed. By Christmas, Rundstedt says, asked Berlin, wants permission to go to a defense, defensive posture. He's recognized there's no hope for the offensive. Uh, second SS Panzer Corps, which was supposed to be shifted behind first SS Panzer Corps, was shifted instead to Monteufel's thing. Uh, Monteufel's units go towards Bastogne, they're the principal uh, combatants there, and second SS Panzer goes up towards Manhe, where by this time the US Army has mobilized. So third armored division's up near Manhe. They, they stop the Panzers at Manhay. Second U.S. Armored Division gets in behind Bastogne and creates the big cell pocket where the German tanks are, are uh, uh, encircled and crushed. Okay, reasons for the failure of autumn mist. Plan overestimated German capabilities. Hitler acted as though the German army in the winter of 1944 was comparable to the German army in the summer of 1944. As I detailed earlier, it was much, much weaker, much poorer quality than it was in the summer. It's significantly underestimated the United States, or the US Army. When you read German accounts by Frontier Vest or other intelligence organizations, it's like reading about Kasserine Pass. They take the lessons of Kasserine Pass from the summer, from February of 1943, the US defeat in Tunisia, and they act as though the US Army has learned nothing since Tunisia. And so there's this assumption that the US Army is going to behave the way that it did in Kasserine Pass which is, was not the case in Sicily, it was not the case in Italy, and it certainly wasn't the case in France. But they still have this rather misguided assessment of the US Army's uh, capabilities. What I pointed out earlier, whether mud forced the panzers to fight for the villages, that stopped them because it's difficult to do. German artillery was 
insufficient to overcome the U.S. Army's village strong points. On the other hand, U.S. artillery was superb. Um, it's hard to underestimate the importance of U.S. artillery in this phase of the Battle of the Bulge. Everybody thinks the Battle of the Bulge is a big tank battle. Uh, it was an infantry artillery battle, and artillery was very, very important. Um, U.S. combined arms teams succeeded in village defenses. It wasn't just the infantry. Uh, Kernkel Roshroth, as I mentioned, was held by a good chunk of a tank battalion and a tank destroyer battalion that were essential in, to, in the defense. Defense in the Alsenborn sector, that whole area I was talking about before, derailed the attack on the much earlier than Bastogne. Bastogne is more Christmas time. The, the key point, no plausible German opportunity, operational opportunities in the Bastogne sector beyond attrition. There's nowhere to go. If you've ever been up to the Bastogne area and you go over to the Meuse River, you go over to, towards Dino, which is the, the town that's over on the other side of the Meuse from, uh, from Bastogne, it's got this narrow little passageway to get out of it. There's these cliffs. If the Germans had crossed the Meuse there, they're not going anywhere. The British sent in some armor units. That's blocked. It's all corked up. There's, not, there's nowhere to go. And then besides that, if you're down in that area, you can't get up to Antwerp. You have to go through most of Belgium. So they have no operational opportunities. So that's the end of my presentation. And I think that we have time for questions. And I will turn it over to Carl. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, some time for Q&A. Uh, if you see Mary over there and myself, if you raise your hands, if you have a question, and like I said, please wait for one of the other of us to, uh, to come to you. So who would like to get us started tonight? Right here in the middle. I'm just curious what primary German sources you used in your book? The, um, all of the planning documents were from the records of Harris Group D. Um, Harris Group D is a somewhat misleading title. These records are held at the National Archives and Records Center down in College Park. Uh, Harris Group D was the formation that preceded OB West, Rundstedt's headquarters. They still have most of these operational plans. Um, so tracing the, the lineage of the Ardennes Offensive, you can go down there, there's the maps, there's all of the various plans. The divisional records are mostly missing. Um, uh, I was having a discussion earlier tonight about um, uh, German wartime records. Uh, Luftwaffe records, they think, the German archivists right now think that about only 3% of Luftwaffe records survive. Don't know about on the Wehrmacht Waffen SS side, maybe 5%, but it's not a lot. Um, in the case of 12th SS Panzer Division, there are no written records of 12th SS Panzer Division in the Ardennes. What there is, is there are unit histories. There was a unit history put together by the Kameradenschaft, the, the veterans group. And then besides that, right at the end of World War II, the U.S. Army Historical Center went around to senior German commanders. They had a program called FMS, Foreign Military Studies. And they had the senior German commanders sit down and write their memoirs or their recollections of these battles. So my main source for at divisional level was the FMS studies. Most of these infantry divisions, for example, the 277th Volksgrenadier that I mentioned. There are three histories of the 277th in the FMS series. There's multiple ones for 12th SS Panzer, for 1st SS Panzer Corps. Um, some records have been starting to appear. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, reg the regimental records for 12, uh, SS uh, Panzer Regiment 12, the Panzer Regiment of the division, have mostly disappeared, except a Hungarian who I know found them in Prague in the military archives in, in Vanyakiv, um, except there's none for the Ardennes. Uh, great, great stuff for Normandy, nothing for the Ardennes. So German records are not great. There are, there are a lot of records. I don't mean to say there aren't records. But as compared to the U.S. Army, U.S. Army, I have day-to-day -day casualty records, all sorts of stuff, you know, situation maps, tons, tons and tons of detail. On the German side, I've got, I've got most of the big picture, but there's still, there's still big gaps. And, and I think there always will be. All right, we have one right here in front. Uh, realizing, you know, it's speculation, but it's kind of fun. Um, you know, uh, Hitler had this big solution. Um, have you speculated if, if he succeeded in his big solution, how it would have altered the war at all? Uh, my answer to that is, and I've, I've actually been asked this, one of my publishers actually wants to do a series on, you know, what if things. 
my my answer is he should have they should have talked to the uh, to the I shouldn't use the word German, uh, junior commanders but the commanders underneath Hitler Rundstedt Model those people those people did leave behind notes and stuff they thought big solution had no chance at all none zero in fact it's so bad that in some of the planning the planning didn't go beyond the Meuse. They, they figured out how to get up to the Meuse, and that was it. They just thought, there's no chance we're getting any further. We don't even have to bother doing that. So that, that's how bad it was. I don't think it had any chance. I mean, this isn't a case of, oh, if they had tweaked this or they had tweaked that, you would have gotten a different result. If they had tweaked certain things, like if they had gotten the two panzer divisions up that better road, yeah, they probably would have penetrated deeper, but they wouldn't have gotten much further. Uh, the U.S. Army had the resources, and they had the ability to move it fairly quickly. And the Germans had lots of deep, deep problems, which is what I wanted to hint at by describing the situation with 12th Panzer Division. All right, we have right up here in the very front. Uh, wonderful talk. Um, why, or perhaps maybe it was ignored, uh, German, um, they didn't understand the terrain didn't they see that the, because um, I've been there a uh, short uh, vacation, the, it kind of is like a, um, a washboard that kind of goes against yeah. where they want to go. Right. Hitler, yeah. yep. did, why didn't they see like the, 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 uh, the mountains and the terrain? And the road, most of the roads go like north-south and not the way... I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, Hitler didn't know the terrain. Hitler, Hitler never spent any time in the Ardennes. Hitler had this dream vision from the Battle of France in 1940, when, of course, they were going through with much less extensive forces. The density of forces going through the Ardennes in 1940 was nowhere near what it was in the winter, and also didn't go through this sector. There were German units who went through this sector, but not the main units. The main units were further down south, down towards Luxembourg. Um, so he didn't have a, a firm grab on that either. A lot of the planning was very perfunctory in the sense that when you look at the planning, they understood that, for example, that tank trap business and this road business, Rollbahn A, what the Hitler-Jürgen division ends up using, was not considered one of the main roads. That was considered basically for reconnaissance forces. They didn't really expect to use it. They knew all those tank traps were there. They had plans in place. And engineer battalions were supposed to come down with high explosive, rip a few holes in those tank traps, get units through, more engineers were going to come in and put earth over the, uh, the tank traps. That's great until you have a traffic jam, and your engineers are 10, 10 or 15 kilometers back stuck in the traffic jam, but you've got to get through those obstacles right now. Um, and it, you know, repeating this, uh, this other point, the, Germans, the German army had gotten progressively worse as the war went on in offensive tactics. They had no offensive engineer specialized equipment of the type that you see in the Russian army the U.S. Army and the British Army. Yeah, something as simple as dozers. You, know, you don't think that's a big deal, but in World War II, an, ar an army that has dozers can get over obstacles. The Germans had no tank dozers. I mean, it sounds like a strange little point, but tank dozers do you a big job. The U.S. Army didn't have them until the summer of 44 either, so I don't, I don't mean to suggest it was, you know. We have one back in the why do you think the historiography is all focused on Bastogne and the action in the south versus this more critical area of the battle? I'm, I'm going to tell you my conspiracy theory. <laughs> I just, just had. Um, some, something happens early in December, which I'm sure some of you are aware of. Um, uh, Bradley's headquarters, the uh, 12th Army Group headquarters, was located in Spa, Belgium, just sort of up the road from where I was talking about. Um, its main communication link was captured by the Germans. So, the headquarters suddenly lost uh, some of its ability to communicate, especially up north up to 9th Army. 9th Army's up around Aachen. So um, uh, uh, Montgomery comes to Eisenhower and says, well, let me take over the northern side because my command stuff, which is up on the northern side, and he's interfaced with 9th Army anyhow, um, let me take over that sector and have Bradley just take care of the southern sector, who he is in contact with. Well, as we all know, Bradley and Montgomery were not two happy campers. And um, they're very, uh, they're at each other's throats. So in any event, and Bradley regards this as an insult. You know, a chunk of the U.S. Army is being subordinated to uh, the British 21st Army Group. So there's a certain amount of bitterness there. Now, this sector is in the sector that Montgomery commands. Now, if you go and look at the history, the history of the units that, are under, that remain under Bradley's command with 12th Army Group, 
get a lot more detail in the units further up. And I don't think that's peculiar to just this situation. If you look at what happens with, um, with uh, Devers and the U.S. forces down south in Alsace, 7th U.S. Army and 1st French Army, you know, you, I, I have a stack of the green books, the U.S. official ar Army histories at home. The, the ETO is like this for Bradley's units, and the one for Devers is one volume. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to push this point too far, but I do think that that had a great, that that had something to do with it. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but that had something to do with it. All right. Good evening, sir. I'm asking you a question in relationship to your, how can you account, which you admitted about the failure of the operation known as Autumn Mist, how were U.S. combined arms teams successful in defending these Ardennes village, the Ardennes villages or that area of like the low countries, Germany, when they were encountering German units, I mean, they, there may not have been as many of them because this was considered, you know, the weaker area, you know, hence the bulge that we now call. Um, how, my question is, how were, how do you think, how were our, our, our combined armed teams were successful in the village defenses when they're encountering German equipment such as the FG-42 and the very first assault rifle in the world known as the Sturmgewehr, STG-44. 44. Yeah. Uh, on, the, on the German small arm side, it's a very ans easy answer. They didn't have any. Um, Volksgrenadier units were supposed to get the top-notch equipment. They were supposed to get Sturmgewehr 44s. The whole idea of Volksgrenadier is to give them more defensive firepower and a smaller package of, of manpower. There's fewer men in a Volksgrenadier uh, division than in a conventional infantry division. The unit that we're talking about here, the 277th, had very, very few Sturmgewehr 44s. They also, they don't get into the villages. They're killed by artillery outside the villages. Um, now, the, the Fallschirmjäger, the 3rd Fallschirmjäger Division down south did have FG-42s, but that's just a case of very poor training in the unit. They're, those are not really paratroopers down there. They're not the caliber of troops that were in the 3rd Fallschirmjäger Division in Normandy. Third, just go back and look at the Saint-Lô battles in Normandy and listen to how the U.S. reports their encounters with 3rd Fallschirmjäger. They're considered, you know, almost like supermen. But the, the division in the winter of 1944 it's just a poor shadow of what it was in the summer. And that's one of my points here about the Ardennes. Just because the German army was terrific in the summer of 1944 does not mean it was the same army in the winter of 1944. In your analysis of the German shortages of arms and equipment, did that come from the post-war German accounts? And if so, what's your reliability factor? Because wouldn't it have been to their advantage to show that they were short of everything? I think that they were relatively honest about it because a lot of the statistics don't come from the units themselves. They oftentimes come from, I don't want to say quartermaster records because that's, that's an inaccurate description of the records. But they come from deep records. They're not just coming from, you know, for example, the divisional commanders who write their memoirs for uh, foreign military studies they could go back and try to diminish their own responsibility by saying, oh, we didn't have this, oh, we didn't have that. But you can, in fact, go back into other types of records from higher commands. Uh, for example, there's a whole series of these uh, charts which list division by division that are taking part in the Ardennes campaign, and they list in excruciating detail every single weapon that these units have. And that's, that stuff isn't falsified. These are contemporary documents that were written at the time, and they were for use in the central headquarters in Berlin get some appreciation for the strength or the weaknesses of their units. So yes, I think that the FMS studies you do have to be careful with because there could be some attempts at justification for the defeats. But I think that when you look at the internal German army records, that you, you, you get a clearer sense of it and a, and a more precise sense of it. Thank you. Thank you, very good speech. Two-part question, please. Do you think that Piper was directly responsible for the Malmody massacre? And the second question is when the, let's see, the 106th Division, I think, relieved the 2nd Indian Division on the line. Mm -hmm. 
you have any idea the number of casualties that took place in the 106 Green Division? Um, on the Piper situation, I'm going to completely defer because I've never really done any serious work on it. Uh, Danny Parker, who's a very well-known uh, historian, American historian on the Battle of the Bulge, he recently wrote a book on the Malmedy Massacre. So if you are interested in that, I'd go and get Danny Parker's book. He's a really good researcher. And I might add, I don't know if he wants me to say this, but I know he's doing some further work in that area. So if you, if you are interested in that whole issue, I would go and take a look at his stuff. He does you know, really first-rate work. Um, 106 had uh, three infantry regiments in the line. They lost two. There was only one uh, regiment. I don't remember the exact number of troops. It was pro they probably lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 troops. Um, but it was, it was roughly in that neighborhood. That was the single most serious defeat of the U.S. Army in the, um, in the Battle of the Bulge. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, 106 was a brand new Green Division, which had literally arrived in the Ardennes only a few days before. They got sh shifted into the front of the line, and without any combat experience at all, two of the regiments were encircled. They surrendered. One regiment um, survived. Ladies and gentlemen, with that, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, the director here at the AHEC, to make a few words. So, uh, so Stephen, thank you uh, so much for your presentation, and, uh, and more so, I, I think, the dialogue afterwards. Uh, you are clearly a scholar and author, researcher through and through the kind of of folk that we like to have present here to, to this kind of crowd. Uh, and as is in keeping with great military tradition, most of you all uh, would recognize that we traditionally around the Army recognize a great performance, great, uh, great things with the presentation of a coin. And we have a similar tradition here at USAHEC. I hope that you would accept this as a small token of our appreciation. It'll go up in the wall in my office. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.